This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Saris, a company that dedicates $100,000 every year to cycling advocacy programs. They also make the exceptional Magnus and Hammer indoor smart trainers, the kind that allow you to ride your bike around a fictional video game island from the comfort of your podcast partner's basement. All right, there you are. That's your guy. That's me? That's you. So start pedaling. Now, my podcast partner happens to be a competitive cyclist. He's been geeking out on these trainers for a month. But if you don't have someone explaining things to you in very granular detail, what you need to know is that Cyclops Smart Trainers convert your normal outdoor bike into a stationary bike and link it to your computer. This allows you to adjust pedaling resistance on the fly. And if you use virtual training software like Ruby or Zwift, the bike will react to the digital environment you're riding through. Slip in and draft behind the peloton, and you'll feel the difference. Jump on them. See? Oh, yeah, you could. See, if you close the gap, yeah, if you catch them, then you'll get a um, drafting boost, so it'll get okay. a little easier. Yeah, so now you're drafting. Hi, guys. Sarah's trainers are handmade in Madison, Wisconsin. Use Ruby or Zwift software, and you can race your friends or just other random online people anytime you want. Which means even competitive cyclists, podcast-producing new fathers can bring their ride inside and sacrifice nothing. And for me, you know, like on a busy day and, and watching Zev and just, you know having no time during daylight to go out and train to to know that this is here that I can come down and have like a killer workout that's not just hard but also like fun to do is it's kind of been a game changer uh I'm actually a, a year on into fatherhood I'm in shape again which makes one of us but I'm working on it what else do we need to talk about well I don't know I mean you've got 40 minutes before you get to the top of this climb so so Get comfortable. Pretty much. Yeah. (laughs) From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the science of survival. About this time last year, I went to the coast to go surfing. And there was this huge flock of seagulls way down the beach when I got there. I mean, just an abnormally big bunch of birds doing bird things. And so I went over there to check it out. And what I found was essentially the skin of a dead whale. Like, it obviously used to be a humpback whale, but there weren't any organs or bone. Some marine biologists had already done an autopsy and taken away the insides. So it was just sitting at the edge of the water, being eaten by seagulls as waves washed in and out over the top of it. And then I went out surfing, and I got pulled a little too far out, and had the thought that the human equivalent of a whale washing up on the beach would be getting swept out to sea on a surfboard. Just like a whale, we'd be out of our element, able to breathe and rest, but basically powerless to self-rescue. And that got us wondering, what would happen if a surfer found himself alone in the ocean, at the mercy of the weather and the waves? How long could you last on the water with nothing? In this new series on the science of survival, we're putting you in the audio version of different survival scenarios. Some are fictional, some are true, but everything is based on what would happen in a similar situation, or what has happened in the past. This one, however, this one is different. It started out as a hypothetical, kind of far-fetched situation. And then, in the middle of our research, we found someone who'd actually been through it.
The wind is steady and perfect as you nudge your car towards the beach to see the waves and check the surf. It's quiet and empty and peaceful. Just three or four people on six miles of sand. It's why you come here. Two days ago, after a long session at your local climbing gym back in Glasgow, you checked the forecast and nearly danced with joy. A six-foot swell would be hitting Scotland's west coast all day Sunday. The sun would be out and a strong offshore wind would shape the waves into perfect crescent lips a few hundred yards out. This empty beach, in those conditions, you can't think of a better weekend. The shortboard on your roof hasn't been out since last year, so you spend a few minutes spreading wax around. A stranger in the parking area zips up the back of your wetsuit. Then you eat a banana, deciding to leave behind the candy bar on your front seat. It'll be a perfect after-surf treat. The wind is blowing straight out to sea. It's stronger than you thought it would be, but moving in the right direction. It carries you out through all the waves trying to push you back to shore. It's the easiest paddle out you can remember, and the water is cold, but not unbearable. You have a wetsuit, and you'll build a fire once you get back to camp. And you're Scottish. Cold and wet is how you live. You catch three waves before heading out past the breakers to rest. They'll be the only waves you catch today. Bobbing in the ocean like a cork, marveling at your good fortune to be out here, you start drifting away from land, too slowly to notice as you stare out at the massive sea. But looking back towards the shore, Yes, you're definitely moving away from land. You're caught in a riptide. Riptides kill hundreds of people each year. They are the ocean's deadliest phenomenon. But riptides have nothing to do with tides. A rip is a current of water pushing back out to sea. Waves push water towards shore. Rip currents take that water back out and they can move as fast as two meters per second, dragging swimmers, surfers, and even unlucky dogs out past the surf zone. But riptides are narrow bands of current, and usually surrounded on both sides by water pushing back towards land. All you have to do is get out of the rip and swim back to shore. You paddle sideways, parallel to the beach, and wait to feel the current let you go. It's odd that it never does. Getting frustrated with your lack of progress, you decide to turn straight towards shore and sprint back to land. But after 15 minutes, your shoulder seizes up in a cramp and every stroke sends a spear of agony up and down your right side. Sitting up on your board to stretch the muscles you overworked at the climbing gym, 
You realize in one sickening moment that you're still drifting out to sea, and that it's not a rip current you're stuck in, but that perfect offshore wind pushing you ceaselessly away from land. Sitting up even straighter, you try to wave at people on shore, but the wind just gets even more purchase. You're now a half a mile out to sea, and to them, you just look like a flapping bird gliding on the wind, which, unfortunately, you are. Somewhere south of you, down the beach, you know there's a long spit of land jutting out into the ocean. The tide is pulling you toward it. Even though it's six or seven miles from where you parked, if you paddle with the current, you should hit it. It'll be a long walk back to your car, but this will be quite the story to tell. And you can stop in first at the local pub, have a laugh and get some soup, maybe a ride back to your camp spot. You paddle slowly with your injured shoulder, and an hour passes. You're getting closer to land, but not very quickly, and you're slowing down. Another hour goes by, and you curse your decision not to eat that candy bar. It's only after three hours that you're finally close enough to see people on shore. As you're hunkering down for the final push, you let yourself daydream about warmth, about food and company. You'll tell the bartender about it and he'll give you a round on the house. You'll tell the locals about it and they'll tell the story for months. You're rehearsing it in your head when a single pink balloon floats out silently past you on the wind. The strangeness of it snaps you out of your single-minded pursuit and you look around. That's when you realize you've stopped moving. The tides have changed, and the water you were counting on to carry you south is now pushing you back north, back out to sea. Tides follow the moon. High tide is when the moon is directly overhead or directly under your feet on the opposite side of the Earth. When it's directly overhead, the moon's gravity pulls ocean water towards it, increasing the volume of water in that part of the world. Low tide is the theft of that water by the moon's gravity as it travels away. In the channel between Scotland and Ireland, the water runs back and forth twice a day, chasing the moon, pulling you north and south like a game of pong. All you know is that you won't reach the shore you spent half a day paddling towards. This is becoming more serious than the foolhardy adventure you first took it for. You may never again set foot on dry land. This is the moment you realize you could die. You're pulled north, and then back south again six hours later. There's nothing to do but cling to your board. You force yourself to paddle 30 seconds at a time, 
but it's more to stay warm than in hope of reaching shore. The sun's going down, and you're miles out to sea. No one knows you're out here. You have no way of signaling for help. There is no plan. Just a creeping despair and an impulse to try and stay warm. This is when you first think to yourself, not that you could die, but that you probably will. There's no way to know how many people have been set adrift, alone on the ocean. The typical story starts with a shipwreck. In 1972, Scottish sailor Dougal Robertson and his family survived for 38 days at sea in a small dinghy after killer whales sunk their schooner near the Galapagos Islands. In 1981, naval architect Stephen Callahan lost his boat to a storm and survived 76 days at sea in a life raft. He then came home and designed a better life raft. In 2012, Jose Alvarenga, an El Salvadoran fisherman working in Mexico, was swept out to sea by a storm and survived 438 days alone in a small boat, eating fish and drinking turtle blood. Alvarenga's ordeal may be the most harrowing experience we know of, but Japanese sailor Oguri Jukichi and two of his crew hold the record for the most time spent adrift. In 1815, their ship was damaged in a storm, and they spent 484 days at sea, drifting from Tokyo to California. They drank rainwater and ate the soybeans in their cargo hold. They were rescued just before succumbing to scurvy. But all of these people were in a life raft or small boat, most in warm or tropical waters, they were completely dry most of the time. You're on a short board, half of your body in the water, off the coast of Scotland. You might not make it till morning. When night falls and the darkness takes over, you lose all sense of time and space. Lights on the shore go out. Distant cargo vessels in the shipping lanes disappear over the horizon. There are no stars, no moon, no way to tell how far you've drifted or which direction. It's the deepest, blackest night you've ever seen. All you can do is take stock of your discomfort. The cold is torture, terrible and constant. You have cramps in your thighs and the backs of your legs, and you've spent so much time kicking your feet that they're stuck in the pointed position. Your hands are numb and you have no grip at all. Your blood is turning sludgy and thick from dehydration. You've been in 50 degree water for 15 hours. Your wetsuit has now saved your life many times over, but your body temperature is somewhere in the low 90s. Just a few more degrees and the cold will win. You'll lose consciousness and drown. 
but not yet. You try and keep your face dry, but whenever you relax, the waves wash over your head. Small insects, glowing and blue, appear beside you in the water, and you poke at them with your numb hand, unsure if this is some strange, rare form of bioluminescence or a hallucination, your brain's way of distracting you from the voice in your head that recently started saying, no one is coming, there's no point in suffering. Give up. Give up. Give up. The voice is your only companion at night. It catalogs your life and all of your achievements, regrets, places you didn't go and things you didn't say. You start thinking of family members and friends all the things you'd change, and all the things you cherish. You remember falling out with your brother, then making peace again. You think through each person in your life and say goodbye, like checking off a list. I love you. Goodbye. I'm sorry. And then finally, hopeless and cold, you slip off the board into the water and let it drift away. You know, I slipped off the board deliberately intending to, to die. Your head goes under and you don't even feel the cold. You just relax because it's over. Except, I hadn't undone the leash. You forgot about the leash. From the surfboard. And so when I started drowning, I felt that tug from my ankle and I chased that tug and grabbed the board again and pulled myself up. When you decided to, to let go of the board, I mean, was it a matter of... I'm so miserable, I just, I sort of, I want this to end? Or was it more of like, you know, I know the statistics here, like the, the chances of me being found and surviving are so low, you know, there's no point now. It, or does it even fit into either category? I think it's probably a mix of the two, to be honest. Um, because it was it was really like a bone-chilling cold Um and I did, I wanted that to end. That was just, it was painful. It was incredibly unpleasant. It was just a horrible, horrible feeling to be that cold. I didn't actually think I was going to make it through the night. I thought I was going to die of hypothermia before that point. So in my head, I was thinking, okay, I'm going to die of hypothermia. You know, let's just end it. You, you, you kind of said that you were evaluating your life. Were, what did you were you happy with it what you no what you saw no not at all like I I had had dinner on the Saturday night with my family with my mum and dad Um, and it was something as simple as I'd said goodnight instead of I love you like those were the last words to my parents I said goodnight and thinking that I'd not said I love you at that point 
that that tears like you're not happy that you've done that and then it's all of those little things that you could have done better that just i mean that just sounds like uh almost like you're you're hurting your, yourself at that point um was there any sense of like your brain is telling you this almost as a way to like motivate you to, to keep going and, and change things is there no. any sense of that no not at all um that motivation came afterwards um but at that point it was just you know despair you know there still was no motivation the only motivation at that point was to stay uh, warm and really emotionally after that i was very numb because because i still in my head the only truth was that I was going to die. You start paddling, just trying to warm up, angry at yourself for being a quitter. You will paddle all night, not to get anywhere, just to survive. Pretty soon, you have a new plan. And then it kind of occurred to me that, oh, I'm supposed to be working today. Um, so if it's five now, I'm supposed to be in work by nine. And they they should call my parents maybe about 10 or half 10. And then they might realize, oh, he's not came home. So they're gonna call the Coast Guard and then the search might start by 12. Um, but throughout that day, you know, I was very numb because you know, in my head I was still thinking, you know, I'm a dead man, I'm a dead man, and all I'm doing is I'm focusing on the cold. Um, I'm focusing on trying to keep my head out of, out of the water. Um, it's the only thing I can really focus on, because I can't get water, I can't get food. The only thing I can focus on is my heat. You know, you kind of went back to the most primal instincts. You know, water, food, heat, focus on that. So that kept me going through the night and then through the morning. And then during the morning, maybe about 12 o'clock, one o'clock, so the afternoon, um, I actually saw a helicopter uh, flying about and searching in the squares. And then I realized the search was starting and that kept me going as well because I realized people were looking for me. At that point, I was like horribly, horribly dehydrated and a little bit delirious and I had a wetsuit that was going over my ears. So I could hear like just the, the gentlest, just just that gentlest noise. And I, I, I thought I was imagining it at that point. I thought that was just in my head. So I would take the hood off my ear to see if I could hear it. And it was just the softest kind of shoop, shoop, shoop. So I didn't know if I was imagining it or it was real. But then I saw the helicopter come over and I heard it then because it got you know steadily louder. They search for hours, in perfect squares, but they don't realize how far you've blown out to sea. And they, if they'd continued doing those squares northwards, they would have actually flew over me. You watch them give up and fly away. Or maybe they just need to refuel. 
your heart would sink if it weren't already completely waterlogged. I mean, during the second day, uh, like, I, I started to kind of, like, mentally just, like, break down. Um, you know, I started getting almost manic. Uh, there was uh, some seagulls and ducks, like, swimming nearby uh, around me. And I just started laughing to myself, thinking, oh, I must be near land. Because I was between, like, Northern Ireland and Scotland, so I could see land in every direction. And then I, I kind of made that joke that I must be near land, and I just kind of laughed and laughed kind of manically. That was the only other real point during the second day that I can really remember. It's hours later that you finally see the helicopter again, swooping towards you from shore. It's just a blur in the distance, but this is your chance. So I slipped back on my board and used it, my body to kind of prop it up, to point it upwards. And I was kind of wiggling it and waving it um, to try and you know, catch their attention. It was a last ditch effort. And they do. They see you. In fact, the helicopter swoops all the way down and lands on the water right in front of your board. But then you blink it into focus, and it's just a bird. So I was waving it like seabirds to recover me. Like, I was, I was delirious. <sighs> Through the delirium, the one thing you know for sure is that you won't last another night. Your body temperature is nearing its lower limit. You'll pass out soon. So, as the hours drag on, you point your surfboard away from home, towards the setting sun. If it drops below the horizon, you decide. You'll let go of the board. But not until after you've undone the leash. So I was just facing out east. Uh, sorry, west, uh, towards where the sun was setting. So I was watching the sunset, and in my head, when the sun was setting, in my head was, you know, that's it, I'm, j I'm just going to slip off the water. You've done well to carry this long, but, you know, that's, that's you done. You're not going to make it a second night, so just, you know, slip off. So I was watching the sun, and then I could hear that kind of shoop, 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 very, very faintly. And in my head, you kind of expect them to just stop there and, you know, move quickly and, you know, drop down and start recovering you. But they, they flew over me in a straight line, and in my head, I thought, OK, they've missed me. That, that's it. Um, but then they turned around and stopped. I'm very, very aware that the only reason I'm alive right now is through luck. It was just one co-pilot's 
you know, corner of the eye that caught me uh, when they were flying past. But they, they dropped down um, and they moved towards me. And I saw the, um, I don't know what he's called, but he, the guy who came down on the line to recover me, um, they moved towards me, they flew closer to me once the lane was in the water. And he came up to me and just said, well done. Like, that's all he said, he just said, well done. And so they, they took me onto the, the helicopter and I just collapsed on the floor. And at that point, that's when see all that emotion that I'd been building up for that whole day, that's when that all came up and I was crying like a child. Like, it was, like it was almost explosive because in my head I'd be going I'm a dead man I'm a dead man I am dead you're going to die and that big bit of my brain was just saying let go give up you know you're going to die that disappeared as well and then you had that point of saying you're safe you're safe you're safe I'm safe That's surfer Matthew Bryce. He was in the water for 32 hours and had drifted 16 miles west, away from the coast of Scotland. He was three miles closer to Ireland than Scotland when he was found. Bryce was taken to a hospital in Belfast and stayed there for several days while he was treated for rhabdomyolysis, which is muscle breakdown from extreme exercise that can damage your kidneys. He was also treated for wet, cold tissue damage on his hands and feet. It's poor circulation caused by the cold, like frostbite, except the tissues never completely freeze. He'd like to remind all of us to tell someone where we're going when we go outside, and have a plan in place if you don't come back. When he got to Glasgow, one of the first things he did was eat that candy bar, still in his front seat. I got my car back and the Mars bar was still there, and I just ate that immediately, just to go, you know, that's, that's mine. <laughs> Bryce made a full recovery and went surfing again for the first time on Friday, November 10th. This piece was brought to you by Saris, makers of the Magnus and Hammer indoor trainers. If you're going to be stuck inside this winter, get one. It'll change your life. This piece was written and produced by me, Peter Frickwright. It was edited by Robbie Carver. Sarah Molo Christensen narrated the piece. You can find more of her work at saramolo.com. Original music by Nona Envy and Steve Ernest, as well as music from Nona Envy's album Meditations. Additional music by Robbie Carver. Thanks to Frankie Breedlove, Alex Ward, and Andrea Mustaine. This episode of The Science of Survival is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation enhancing public understanding of science, technology, economic performance, and the perils of surfing. More at sloan.org. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX.